talking about marriage at the story uh, for two weeks now. We're going to continue talking about marriage through the end of this month. I know not everyone here is married, all right, so I don't want to alienate single people. We've spent months and months and months talking about single people issues, um, but the truth is that a bunch of people are married, but a whole bunch of other people, single people and, and divorced people want to be married or want to be married again one day. And so hopefully some of these conversations we're having will enhance and enrich your life, whether or not you're married. And I hope if, I, my real hope in writing this sermon is that it's probably not going to be for 80% of you, but the 20% of you or the 10 or 5% of you who are married and have come here wondering whether your marriage is going to make it. That's who today's sermon's for, honestly. The rest of you, sorry, just take notes and pass them along to your unhappy married friends. <laughs> and, and make the most of it. Uh, but I hope somebody gets, I hope everybody gets something out of today. But marriage is so important to me. I am such a believer in marriage and what it can do to people in a good way. I got married at 20 years old to Pastor Giovanna. We were 20 year, year old uh, bride and groom. And everybody thought we were crazy. Some of y'all thought pregnant, right? You thought I was going to say pregnant? <laughs> No, some of that too, but that wasn't true. Impossible, no way. Uh, that's part of the reason we got married at 20. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I, um, I got to say though, as wonderful as marriage is and how much I believe in it, our first few years together were really, really rough. And I don't want you to think that I'm coming at this as, from a holier-than-thou perspective. And if you've been... Married and divorced, or if you're on the brink of divorce now, or if you're really struggling, look, I'm a guy just like a lot of y'all are guys. Gio's a, a, a woman just like a lot of y'all are women, and we, we've just tried to work through this. And the two of us are volatile personalities. We're very stubborn people. That might be the only reason we stay together. I don't know. Just we wouldn't give up, you know, that kind of a thing. But we're just, we're just people. And we went through some very hard times. Part of it was because we were so young. A lot of it was because we were so broke. We didn't have any money, and uh, neither of our parents could help us through college. We got married after our sophomore year of college. So we were in school full-time, but we were also going to work 30 hours a week. I worked at a jewelry store selling diamonds, and uh, Pastor Gio worked at a Victoria's Secret <laughs> selling dreams. Uh, <laughs> We never did utilize that employee discount. There just wasn't enough money to go around, but a lot of y'all are having trouble picturing Pastor Gio at a Victoria's Secret, but uh, it happened uh, in college. And, uh, you know, some of our problems in marriage looking back were simply that we had all these expectations of each other that we failed to inform each other of before we got married. So I had all these expectations of her that I'm not sure I even knew I had until we were married, and she certainly didn't know. And some of it was little stuff. I thought, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought she would not only enjoy cooking, I thought she'd be really good at cooking. <laughs> and she had never cooked for me our whole time as, as boyfriend and girlfriend or fiancés. I don't know why I thought she got married and suddenly she'd love to cook for me. It, silly thing, but I brought that expectation with me. She thought she expected me to be really good at fixing stuff around the house. She was really bad in the kitchen. I was really bad at fixing stuff. But we brought those expectations with us. We didn't even know it, but we had those unspoken expectations. There was also some bigger stuff that we expected of each other. I, she expected me to be really good with money. 
and I don't know why, maybe her, her dad was really good with money or something, but she just expected me to be the man and save up for us, you know. And at 20 years old, I just wasn't that guy. On the other hand, I expected her to, after marriage, want to color together. Y'all remember coloring means? Add our little euphemism, add the story. Twice a day. I thought it meant, that's what it meant to be married. You get to do it twice a day. And three times on Sunday, you know, because there's time. And, and, like, you just, I thought that's what it meant. And then when that stuff didn't happen and when, you know, the bank statements came and I hadn't saved money, she felt even less like, you know, coloring at all. And so it was, it was one of those things where we just kind of turned on each other. And I, I brought those expectations with me. I didn't just want to color, like, little, like, random doodles once in a while. I wanted the masterpiece every time we colored, you know, like, I wanted it to be great and earth-shattering wasn't always the case. And I'll tell you, there were times when things got really, really bad. When your two pastors had conversations about divorce. And over the 17 years we've been together, we've had several of those. As any couple, most couples probably have over time. Maybe we're better apart than together. Uh, and yet, we stuck it out. And I think part of it was our stubbornness, but mostly it was by the grace of God, we stuck it out. And because we stuck it out and I'm able uh, to have perspective now and I, I'm able to, you know, uh, to be a little more mature about this, uh, I'm grateful um, that we stuck it out together and I'm able to see now that um, not only... Uh, not only am I more like Jesus because of my wife, she's more like Jesus because of me. And so every year we've been together has been better than the one before it. Almost without fail. So I'm a big believer in marriage, but I know I'm, I'm not in the majority there necessarily. I know there are many who would disagree with me. I talked to one. He was a therapist. And I went to him at one of our darkest hours in our marriage. And I'm usually a big believer in therapy. I'm not a big believer in this therapist, however. Uh, and he's in Kansas City, so you're not in danger. But, like, uh, but there are people out there who don't agree in the sanctity of it, right? So I, he asked me what was going on. This is my first time going to him. He said, what's happening? So I explained everything that was happening in our marriage from my perspective. I said, man, she never cooks for me. She nags me. She won't let me spend my money. And we uh, never color. And when we do color, it's less Van Gogh and like, more Van Gogh ahead and get this over with. And, and it wasn't working. And, and so the therapist, having known me for 20 minutes and had never met my wife, he said, what are you doing together? Why are you in this marriage? You're not good for each other. You're incompatible. You're unhappy You'd be better off going your separate ways. Your lives will be easier and happier apart than together, he said. Now, in some small way, I recognize he was right. Some of you will feel the same way about what I'm about to say. In some way, you come to a point at a marriage where it would be easier to walk away. You might even like each other more for a minute had you walked away from each other. You might feel happier if you just cut bait and run. At least for a while, you might feel happier. But looking back now, 
as time affords me this perspective that I have on my wife and our life together, looking back now on all the things I would have missed out on had I taken that therapist's advice and even listened to some of my friends and family, frankly, who told me to be happy and walk away. I wonder now what all I would have missed out on, and it's pretty obvious who all we would have missed out on, my little babies, right? And I think about all the moments that having weathered the storm together, we now have shared my wife and I every time we've made eye contact and just known. Have you ever known someone has your back no matter what? Have you ever had that feeling of assurance that, 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 that they will be with you no matter what? Have you ever given someone else that feeling of assurance? Have you ever known how transcendent and wonderful that feeling is? And thinking about every time she reached for my hand or I reached for hers, like she reached for my hand when she was giving birth to our babies and I was there for her and I reached for her hand when we were saying goodbye to my grandmother last year and she was there for me. And and every season of life that's brought some joy and some pain, our move to Houston, getting to know all of you, starting this church together, our baptisms and our weddings and our funerals, all of it. Had I listened to that therapist, be a different story entirely. Now, I got to own something real quick. There are couples that need to walk away. These cases are rare, however. Cases like extreme situations of abuse, cyclical, like self-destructive or narcissistic behavior that's just, it's not going to be fixed. Bible, the Bible calls for times when it's, it's all right for someone to walk away. There's still grief and brokenness, but it's good to end it, right? But those cases are extremely rare. What we know from most social studies that are done on marriage in America is that people who weather the storm together, two people who hold on through a crisis and stay together through it will be happier together five years after the crisis than they were five years before there was ever a crisis because there's something magical and cleansing about weathering a storm together. The question is, how do we be that couple? How can you be that couple instead of the numerous others that just give up along the way? If you've been married and divorced, I'm not judging the past. We're looking ahead. We're looking to the future, right? You're with Jesus now. Everything's different. How can you be that couple next time that weathers the storm and stays together when everything in our culture is telling you to call time of death on this marriage you're in? So last week we looked at the most romantic story in the Bible with Boaz and Ruth, and I told y'all it's important to grow up when we're dating to prepare us for marriage, and today we're looking at the least romantic story in the whole Bible, and it's uh, the marriage of uh, David and Bathsheba, because I want us to learn something about how two people can go through something awful together and hang on and allow God to make something beautiful happen with them and through them. Some of y'all know the story of King David. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time telling his story, um, but it's like two chapters in the Bible, really long chapters. I'm going to spend one paragraph summing it up for you, all right? So if you don't know the story, fasten your seatbelts. Maybe get out those study guides. This would be a good time to uh, take a few notes if you want to follow along. But David and Bathsheba's story is beyond awful. Now, David uh, begins as a powerful, popular king in this story, right? And so he's full of himself, like a lot of us are, he's full of himself. And he thinks he's entitled to stuff because he's a pretty good guy. And so instead of being off doing what he's supposed to do one time, he stays home, he's being lazy and he's bored. 
and he sees a woman accidentally naked, and she's bathing on a roof, and she's in the nude, and he likes what he sees, and he summons her, and he seduces her, and long story short, she gets pregnant. Her name is Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant with David's baby. David does what liars do, what cowards do. Instead of owning his mistake and ending it right there by repenting, he covers his one lie with another. And he plots and schemes to cover his tracks, and he tries to find a way to make it possible for the woman's husband who was out of town to come home and make it look like maybe it could be his baby. But the husband didn't cooperate, and so he had to come up with another plan, which is also how sin works. Because whenever your first plan doesn't work to cover your tracks, your plans get more and more extreme and egregious. And David eventually plots for the death of his pregnant lover's husband. And when the man is gone... Out of the picture, David plays the role of hero, like he's the great guy who takes in this poor pregnant widow as his own wife and protects her. Just this ugly, ugly story. Now, what I want to own is the fact that this story is an extreme case of marital problems. I doubt there are many of you here today who have ever plotted the death of your, of your married lover's pregnant lover's spouse, right? I hope that, although I wouldn't be surprised, like nothing surprises me anymore, you know, 16 plus years of, mar- of, uh, of marriage and ministry, uh, uh, you know, you've heard it all. But I know this case is extreme. You might not be David and Bathsheba broken, but you're broken. If you're married, if you're human, you're broken. Relationships are inherently broken. Marriage is included among them, especially marriage. And, uh, and so many of us bring that, those problems with us today. Now, uh, if you're sitting here and you're broken, and I expect that you are, I've, I've got to tell you, I've talked to many, many couples over the years who have been in crisis. And it's not always like, he cheated on me. Sometimes it's like, I just don't love her anymore. I fell in love with him. You know, I don't, I don't feel the same way about him anymore. And sometimes it's just the feeling goes away. But I've found that there are some common threads in these stories. And I just wanted to share a few of these common threads with you all. These might be like uh, cautionary tale, warning sign kinds of things, or just like preparation for a future season of your life. But three things I've always seen in, in couples that come to me with crisis. Almost without fail, there's at least one of these things. First of all, couples that tend to struggle tend to have started with suboptimal circumstances. So there's a bunch of these. I'm going to spend a bunch of time on this. But if you began your relationship uh, and uh, you lived together before you were married, statistically, that just indicates you're going to struggle a little bit more. Statistically, it's not a death knell. It's not like a condemnation of who you are. But just statistically, it's going to set you up to be more likely to struggle. If you get pregnant together before you get married, statistically, you're going to be more likely to struggle. If your relationship began together as an affair... If you met when one or both of you were married to somebody else, you're going to be more likely to struggle more than the average couple to have a lasting, lifelong marriage together, right? If, uh, if, uh, if, if you've had money problems, if your parents are divorced, if both sets of parents are divorced, uh, it all makes you more likely to struggle. So having suboptimal circumstances in the beginning doesn't mean your marriage is doomed. You should just be aware it's going to take more work for you and your spouse to get over that. The second thing I see with couples that struggle is just this tendency toward self-centered behavior. This is the couple that sits in front of me and he says, well, she's 
cold, she's frigid, she doesn't care about my needs. And, he sa- and she says, he's distant, he's mean, uh, he only thinks about himself. And they're both convinced that the major problem they're facing together is that their needs individually are not being met. She's convinced the problem is that he's not meeting her needs. He's convinced the problem is that she's not meeting his. And really the problem is that she thought she was marrying her daddy, and he thought she, he was marrying his mommy. And turns out they're both just a couple of kids, immature, incapable of living up to the promises that they made on their wedding day. Because they stood there before God and everybody on their wedding day. Many of y'all did the same. I know I did. I said things I had no business saying. I promise to honor and love and cherish you no matter what. Forever. I think what I really meant to say was, I will if you will. (laughs) That makes more sense to me. That's not what marriage is. That's not what the vows say. You know, but sometimes couples sit in front of me and and she's like, well, I would have, but he didn't. And he says, well, I will, but she won't. And there's gridlock, right? Gridlock doesn't go away on its own. Selfish tendencies. The third thing that I see commonly in marriages that struggle uh, after, uh, after selfishness and un, uh, uh, uncommonly bad beginnings is a pattern of dishonesty. Really more so a pattern of disrespect. Here's what I mean with this. If you really want to gauge the health of someone's marriage, listen to how they talk to each other in front of other people. And then even more importantly, listen to how they talk about their spouse when their spouse is not around. So I just want you to search your heart real quick if you're married, if you're soon to be married. How do you talk to your spouse in front of other people? What words do you choose? What topics do you choose to bring up? How do you convey your feelings about your spouse when other people are around? I'm not saying you can't bring up the bad stuff. I'm saying leave the bad stuff for behind closed doors when it's just the two of you. That's respect. That's the respect your spouse deserves from you. And that's the respect you want from your spouse. Even more importantly, this guys, I, I will tell you that guys, I'm man to man here, like how do you talk about your wife when it's just you and your boys? Or if there's a fight between you and your wife and your mama calls and she wants to take your side and she wants you to turn against your wife because she wants to be the woman in your life again, guys, how do you respond? How do you represent your wife when she's not listening, when she's not around? This is an incredibly accurate indicator of the health of your marriage. I'll tell you a lesson that Gio and I learned. Thankfully, we learned it 10 plus years ago. We learned the value and benefit of always going out of our way to talk each other up in other people's presence. So when there's a dinner party, for example, at our house, and, you know, 10 years ago, we'd have people over, and, and our friends would come over. It was before we had kids, and we were free, and we had people over. And, and she would, instead of saying what she could have said, which would have gotten a laugh or would have maybe gotten some sympathy for her friends, she could have said, yeah, he never fixes anything. You know, he's terrible with money. Instead of saying things like that, she would go out of her way and be intentional to build me up in front of other people. Now, she would say things like, I can't believe how much my husband has grown. 
He gets up early every morning and searches the scripture because he loves God so much and he's worked so hard and I'm so proud of the man he's become. I know he's gonna be a great father one day and I just, I love being his wife. Sounds fake to y'all, but I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you what's fake. What's fake is throwing the person you're supposed to love the most under the bus and telling jokes at their expense. That's fake and that's cheap and cowardly. I think it takes a certain level of intentionality for a wife to build her husband up. And I would do the same thing, you know. There's plenty of stuff I could say to get sympathy or to, or, or to get a laugh in front of other people by talking about my wife. Oh, man. Thankfully, we ordered this dinner in, y'all, because, whew, she don't know how to cook, you know. Like, and, and, and after y'all leave, she's not exactly muy apasionada in the bedroom, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like I could have said I could have said anything 10 years ago, but we decided, I decided, she decided to be intentional, and so I would go out of my way to say things about her in the presence of others that were affirming and respectful. I would say, you know, I met this girl and she was homeless and alone in a foreign country, and I watched her work her tail off and study her classes, write papers in a second language and become summa cum laude, like 4.0 at college. you have any idea how hard that was, guys? And I can't believe how she also got a 4.0 in seminary and she got ordained as a Latina woman. Do you know how hard it is to be respected as a Latina woman pastor, you guys? I can't believe what an amazing woman she has become and she's just getting more beautiful all the time and she's getting amazed, more amazing all the time. I can't believe I get to be her husband. Y'all don't think I say this stuff. Anybody that hangs out with us knows I say this stuff about her and she says this stuff about me now is it fake I will say it's intentional it's intentional here's what happens it's intentional because we say the things we say even when we don't feel it it's not that the stuff's not true it's that we say it even when we don't feel it even when we don't feel like our needs are being met or we're feeling neglected we still say this stuff, and two things happen. Write this stuff down if you're married. Please, please, please. Two things happen when you go out of your way to build up your spouse. Here it is. First of all, you heal. Little fractures and fissures in your relationship. You heal. So this is what I mean. When uh, we're in a fight or when we're struggling or when I'm not feeling loved or I'm feeling neglected, right? If I go out of my way, as I've made a habit to do, to build my wife up for other people, Suddenly, I've forgotten why I was mad at this amazing woman. Like, she's amazing. Why would I ever have been mad at her? Why would I risk losing her? She is incredible, and I love her story. So this kind of thing brings healing. I'll also tack on to this part about healing. Guys, especially guys, sometimes women too, when there are difficulties at home, there will be people in your life, you think they're friends or coworkers. They're, guys, there will be women in your life who are looking for the tiniest chink in the armor of your marriage. They are looking for you to say something negative about your wife. And sometimes the most egregious affairs begin as simply as a husband throwing his wife under the bus, metaphorically, one day, in the presence of the wrong person. And she'll swoop in and she'll take advantage of that weakness, perceived weakness. So building your wife up outside of her presence is insurance for your fidelity and your marriage. I don't know how more gingerly to say that. But the second thing that happens, after healing, uh, the second thing that happens is progress. 
Building your spouse up will bring progress in your marriage. Everybody who's married wants to change their spouse. In some way, you want to change the person, if you're married, the person you're sitting beside right now. If you could wave a magic wand, you'd have like a list of five things you do right now, just boom, that you would change immediately about your spouse. Here's the good news is that your spouse can change. Change is possible, but we go about it the wrong way. We try to enforce it. We try to insult the change into happening, right? But, but what I'm saying is change progress happens when we build each other up in the presence of other people. Here's why. Back in the old days of the dark days of our marriage, right, whenever I thought I was a disappointment to my wife, I was never motivated to go out of my way to do stuff she wanted me to do. In fact, I felt like doing the opposite of what she wanted me to do. If I'm such a disappointment to you, I'll show you, you know. I never wanted to fix stuff for her. She didn't like me anyway, you know. But after an evening of hearing her build me up and put me on a pedestal in front of the people I care about, my friends, my family, after an evening of hearing her say what a great man she thinks I am, I wake up in the morning wanting to live up to the expectations that she's articulated. I want to to climb up on that pedestal, you know. I want to be the man she just described me as, right. So when she encourages me in that way, nothing makes me feel more like strapping on the old tool belt and fixing some stuff around the house. If I had a tool belt, like I would totally, I would totally do it. I'd fix stuff all day if I had a tool belt, but I don't have a tool belt. So, uh, but you know, and I'm not going to say too much about this because it's gross. We're your pastors and y'all don't want to think about this, but the whole coloring thing too. Guys, just trust me on this, man. People change. They're not going to change if you're just sitting over in the corner pouting about how little she wants you making her feel bad and inadequate, like you're going to step out with somebody else who will meet your needs. It's not going to change until you make her understand by the way that you talk to her and about her that you love and cherish her no matter what, even when you don't feel like it. People can change. Sometimes we just get it wrong, and sometimes we go about dealing with our spouse's shortcomings in a whole different way, don't we? When we have frustrations and when we feel like our needs aren't met, we go and resort to what we know. And what we know is one of three ways of managing conflict in our marriage. And none of them get us anywhere. Some of you are fighters. You throw out insults. You scream. And your goal is to win the argument. Some of you are flighters. And the minute there's even the slightest sign of a confrontation, you grab the car keys and leave the house. Because your motto is conflict aversion at all costs. And the rest of you are uh, passive aggressors. Any passive aggressors in the house? No, if you admit it, you're not a passive aggressor. So (laughs) it's the rest of y'all I worry about. Y'all are the worst. The worst. Passive aggressors are the worst. Because you don't fight it out and you don't leave. Either you just sit there and simmer. And you want to make sure we see you simmer. And you sit there wondering how in the world you ended up with somebody who's so incapable of reading your mind. (laughs) Fight, flight, and passive aggression get us nowhere, but that's all we know. That's all we try. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? You know, like it doesn't, it makes it worse, doesn't it? So we need, we need a new way. We need a new way of dealing with our uh, issues and our uh, conflicts besides fighting and fleeing and uh, passive aggression. Now, 
What I want to say today, it might just fix your marriage. I never make these grandiose statements, but I believe in this one, all right? If you came here today hoping for a miracle, if your marriage has been holding on by a thread or you're worried about your future together or if you're engaged and you don't know for sure, here, I'm going to give it to you right now. If you want to be happy in your marriage, if you want to know happiness in this life, in this relationship that you're in, if you want to fix what's broken, what is going to be required of you is getting right to the root cause of it. And so I've got good news for you. I know what the root cause is. In all of it, all of your marriages, I know what the root cause of all your problems is. So here it is. The root cause of all your problems in all your marriages. Y'all give me a little, a little drum roll. The root cause of it, da 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 It is your spouse. Your spouse is the problem. No, 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 no. That's not it. It's your mother-in-law. That's not it either. You're incompatible. You don't like to do the same things. That's not it either. Here it is. The cause of all your problems in your marriage, the only thing that needs fixing, the root of all these issues is me. And by me, I mean you. (laughs) You got excited for a minute. You thought, I can blame the preacher. He's the problem. The preacher's the problem. Even if you're not married or if you are, look at the person next to you and just say, I'm the problem, please. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I made you say that to each other because I know right here in the room right now there are wives sitting next to their husbands thinking, I'm so glad he came to hear this. <laughs> it's like there's husbands thinking the same thing. If you're thinking that, if any part of you is thinking that, you hit the reset button, man. You missed the whole point. You just wasted 20 minutes of your life. You missed it, the whole point, right? So the point is that two people who are happy together, who find happiness together in marriage over the long haul, the happiest of marriages, the most ideal of marriages happen when two people simultaneously choose to say, my selfishness is the greatest problem this marriage has. Some of you might think, well, I'll say it, but he won't. Try saying it until he does. If you care about your marriage, try saying it until she does. One day you might exactly find what you are looking for. 2 Samuel chapter 12, after months of laying one lie on top of another, David finally has to face it because David has a real friend, a real man in his life. Guys, y'all need this guy in your life who does not mince words and he does not beat around the bush and he doesn't let David off the hook. He doesn't act like it's all good no matter what David does. He calls him to the mat and he says what you did was wrong. And David finally grows up. He goes from a boy to a man in 2 Samuel chapter 12 because he doesn't say, but, but, but I'm a man and men have needs. And she was naked. Who gets naked on a roof? Maybe she wanted it, you know, and, and, and yeah, I'm married, but, but, but she makes me feel something that my wife never made me feel. You know, that, those kinds of excuses are for babies, for boys. David grows into a man in this passage. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's where David's renewal begins. That's where his renewal with Bathsheba begins. And God redeems their marriage. We know that David and Bathsheba are included In the family tree of Jesus, God uses David and Bathsheba in their ugly situation to bring about salvation to the whole world. 
The question is, if God can do that with their ugliness, what can God do with you and your marriage? David realized he was the problem, and that was the beginning to the healing. In James uh, chapter 4, this is Jesus' brother writing after uh, the resurrection and the new church had, had begun. And, and James is dealing with couples and families that are arguing in their relationships and fighting and splitting up. And he says, what's causing these fights? Is it not your own selfish desires within you? Your own expectations that you brought into that marriage that nobody knew but you. Your own sense of entitlement. Your own sense that all that matters in the world is you being happy. And look, I don't necessarily fully blame you or anyone here for feeling that way. That's all you've been told your whole life. Is that your personal happiness is the greatest good. It is the highest ideal and you should live your life according to that ideal. And you should do the things that make you happy and stop doing the things that don't make you happy. And drink the products that say happy on the commercials and you know, fill your life with your own personal happiness because happiness is the new God. Your personal happiness is the demigod of our generation. And so we bring those expectations into marriage. And we say to ourselves, maybe you have never said this out loud, but I think the core assumption is what good is marriage if it's not making you happy? What purpose does a spouse serve if they're not bringing you more fulfillment, more happiness? That was certainly my therapist's take on it, and that's many people's take on it. It's what leads many couples to divorce and separation. But in the Christian worldview, we look at marriage theologically. So we have a whole different take on marriage. Marriage isn't just a vehicle for your own personal satisfaction. Marriage should be a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. So marriage was intended and designed to be an example, an opportunity for you to demonstrate and to know and experience the selfless love of God in Jesus. It is to get a taste of heaven here on earth. And some of y'all are thinking if, <laughs> if heaven is a marriage forever, then I'm out. You know, like, but give me a second here to explain. Because marriage is intended to reflect the love of God in Jesus and marriage is intended to make the two of you more like Jesus. That and not your own personal happiness in the moment is the purpose that marriage is intended to serve. And so to understand this, you really have to understand Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. We Christians spend our whole lives talking Christianese, acting like we know what Jesus came to do and it just escapes us. We say and sing, Jesus died for us, he poured out his blood for us, and yay, you know, Easter, yeah, and, and, but we don't absorb it. We don't understand what happened that first Christmas when Jesus surrendered his right to all the comfort and power of heaven. When he chose to come as a baby, vulnerable to all of us. It's not like we deserve to be in control of God, but for a time we were because he chose to give up his authority and his power to come in the form of a baby and be vulnerable with us. And for 33 years, he knew everything you know about life. He knew hunger and thirst. He knew loneliness. He knew sickness. When he was 14, he smelled like a 14-year-old boy smells. And, and, and he, you know, he had all the anxieties of an adolescent. Like when he, his voice cracked, his friends laughed and, you know, it, and one day he found like the biggest zit on his forehead and it was like two hours before the prom. Like Jesus knew all the awkwardness and humiliation, all the reality of life. 
all the love and all the loss, the grief, the sadness, the joy, all of it, Jesus came to know. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And the question is, why would he go through all of the confusion and condemnation, the judgment of the religious people? Why would he let his friends leave him hanging? Why would he take a punishment that wasn't his to take? Why would he die the most painful death imaginable? Why, God, would you do this? We find some answers. Philippians chapter 2 says in your relationships with each other, like your marriages, have the mind of Christ. Who? Being in the very nature of God, having all the power and privilege of God, did not consider that power and privilege as something to exploit over us. He didn't come with thunder and lightning, but he could have. Instead, he emptied himself. He was the anti-David. David was full of himself. Jesus was empty. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant to come and be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why did God come and do what he did in Jesus? To show you and the person sitting next to you, the person maybe you're married to, that there's no place on earth that's dark enough. There's no place in your soul that's dark enough for God to go and find you. In fact, he's already been there and places darker still. And he can find you and he can bring you back home. You see, the cross is like Jesus telling the world that he will come and meet us, leaving his place of purity and holiness and coming to meet us in our mess. You might even say the cross is Jesus' way of submitting to us. We talk a lot about submission in the church around marriage, and, and submission is one of those things that everybody misunderstands, right? Because it's every man's favorite Bible verse. So wives, submit to your husbands. Like, nobody knows where to find it. If I asked you where to find it, you'd be like, I don't know, it's in there somewhere. Ain't she supposed to submit, pastor? And I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe, but, but you might not like the rest of that chapter in Ephesians 5, where it says, submit to one another. Yeah, wives, submit to your husbands, but not out of reverence for him, wives. Believe me, God doesn't expect you to submit to your husbands out of reverence for your husbands. God knows your husbands. Submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. As under the Lord. Submit to your husbands, not because of what your husband did for you, what Jesus did for you. And husbands, you're not off the hook. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, I'll love her if she'll submit to me. That's not how it works. Love is the truest form of submission. In fact, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Take the cross for your wife. You see, sometimes love feels like butterflies, and we think that's what it's supposed to feel like all the time. Most of the time, love feels like a cross. Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it hurts. I want you to picture two extremes with me. I want you to picture Jesus on the cross in the middle. Over here, there's God's holiness and righteousness. And over there, there's us in our mess. And this is Jesus in the middle saying, I'm here. I'm approachable. I'm not going to let you continue to wallow in that mess, but I'm here. Come and meet me here. Submission in marriage looks a lot like that. So submission in marriage looks like this. Over here, you got what he wants. And he's got what he wants over here, all his stuff that he wants and expects from his wife. And over there, we've got what she wants. And we dig in our heels and we 
call sides and we place blame when he's over here and she's over there. Submission in marriage means him coming to the middle and waiting. Waiting for her to meet him there. You see, by coming to the middle, he has to surrender a lot of what he wants and say no to a lot of what he wants and he has to sit here and wait. And he feels weak and he feels vulnerable. Sometimes he feels alone because she might not come right away. He might even have to take a few steps closer to get her attention, but he remains faithful, waiting for us to come. Why? Because she's perfect? No. Because of Jesus. Whenever there's a conflict, we have on the one side fighting. We have on the other side flight. You know, So over here we've got the person that wants to scream and shout. And over here we've got the person that wants to run away like there's nothing wrong. right? And somewhere in the middle, one of you has to break from what you think you deserve. And come find what you know you've always needed. It means maybe not needing to win the fight. You fighters out there, you might need to tone it down a notch and realize what your screaming sounds like to the person, that flighter that you married, because <laughs> fighters and flighters always find each other, right? It might mean surrendering something to come to the middle and be Jesus and wait. Talk about the thing nobody wants to talk about, right? So coloring, right? Every marriage uh, has some issues with coloring. Over here, you got somebody, usually the woman, not always the woman, who wants to color twice a month. Over here, you've got somebody who wants to color, you know, twice a day. Where does this conflict go? Finger pointing and blaming and shaming? No, this probably looks like him relinquishing his need or relinquishing his entitlement to what he thinks he deserves as a husband, coming to the middle and waiting, not shaming her, right? Not making her feel inadequate or pushing her away, just standing here and waiting and being Jesus until she comes to meet him. And guys, sometimes you might need to come a little closer for her to meet you there. The good news is if if you wait long enough, you might find yourself back over here one day. <laughs> it's amazing. It can happen. People can change. We just don't always go about it the right way. If we follow the example of Jesus, we would see what love does. Love empties itself for the beloved. Love puts the beloved's wants and needs first, not because the beloved deserves it, but because Love knows the only way the beloved will ever learn to love is by submission. If you're married, you're bound to struggle. If you're here today barely hanging on, wondering if maybe this doesn't even matter because it's too far gone, I'm, I'm urging you to be encouraged. You might think that the only two options that you face are staying together and being miserable or splitting up and being happy. I'm telling you, Jesus came to show us a third way. It's right here in the middle, right here at the foot of the cross, where you can be together and you can be happy when you both learn what it means to empty yourself for the sake of the other and to love each other the way Jesus first loved you. This was the purpose all along for marriage. And it's so much better than anything else this world can offer. This is my prayer for every person here who's married or wants to be married one day. 
is that you will surrender whatever it is you think you want or you think you deserve and that you will find your place at the foot of the cross where there you'll find what you've always known you need and want the most. Relationship, covenant, faithful love that will never let you go. Love like the love Jesus came to give you. This is the purpose and the miracle of marriage.